Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this series, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, which exhorts the Jewish and Gentile believers to be united in Christ. The author argues that because both of these groups received the same spirit, there can be no distinction made between them on the basis of Jewish religious boundary markers such as circumcision, Sabbath observance and adherence to purity laws. Through his death, Christ has abolished the wall which once separated Jews and Gentiles to create a new unified humanity, bringing peace where there was once division. The rivalry between these two groups must be replaced by positive cycles of mimetic kindness, and they will begin to experience heaven on earth. Unfortunately, the Jewish and Gentile believers in Ephesus, to whom this letter is addressed, remain divided, having become seduced by the spirit of mimetic rivalry. The author now encourages the Ephesians to repent from their mimetic idols and be filled once again with the Holy Spirit. Let's read on now from chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a worthy manner of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the spirit and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature personhood, to the measure of of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The author urges the Ephesians to be united in peace as if they were one body organically knit together by the same spirit who inspires them with a common vision of heaven on earth. The words, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, drives home the fact that both the Jewish and Gentile believers are inducted into Christianity to serve the same God, in the same way by the same rite of initiation, that is, baptism. I think the author is referring to the ritual of water baptism in this verse, but baptism can mean different things in the Bible. 
For example, in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, Jesus used the term baptism to refer to his mission. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and I wish that it had already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The author of Ephesians could be using this term in a similar way, and using the word baptism to describe the Ephesians' common calling in Christ. Alternatively, he may be referring to the ritual of water baptism. Either way, I guess the same point is made. The author points toward a baptism as a tool of unification which transcends the Jewish boundary markers that currently divide the Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus. Although these boundary markers remain, the Ephesians must rally and become united around their common baptism as they commit themselves to a common vision and mission in Christ. Focusing on these uniting characteristics, the Ephesians must be unified in their diversity. To prove this point, the author roughly quotes a verse from Psalm 68 out of context. He says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. I think the general idea expressed here is that Christ has triumphed over evil, like a victorious king who imprisons and plunders his enemies. He then distributes this booty to the church in the form of diverse gifts and abilities. The author goes on to explain that everyone has their unique strengths and roles within the church and employs the image of a body to drive home this idea of unity in diversity. Just as each member of the body serves the united purpose of the whole by performing a different function, so too each person in the church must exercise their strengths and abilities to serve the united vision and mission of the church in their own unique way. The Ephesians must not attempt to imitate one another, which will only breed rivalry, but they must become united in their mission to imitate Christ's example of mimetic kindness to reach the stature of Christ's fullness. No longer will the Ephesians be like children tossed to and fro by the waves of mimetic rivalry, but they will attain unity in faith and maturity to become all that humanity was destined to be. As more people are drawn into this cycle of mimetic kindness, the church grows and builds itself up in love. Reading on now from verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created in accordance with God's will, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. When you are angered, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The author urges the Ephesians not to imitate the conduct of the Gentiles, that is, those outside the church, who are ignorant and alienated from God. Remember the same language is used in chapter 2 verse 12 to describe the Gentiles' former conduct before they were saved and incorporated into Christ. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the author is urging the Ephesians not to revert to their old lifestyle by imitating those outside the church who are ignorant of the mimetic forces which animate them due to the hardness of their heart. In our studies in the book of Exodus, we saw Pharaoh's heart hardened on numerous occasions, which communicates the way mimetic desire controls his actions. A similar idea seems to be communicated here in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18, as the people outside the church are consumed with mimetic desire and rivalry. In this state, the people become callous, or we might even say insensitive, as they pursue their desire at all costs. Intoxicated by their desires, the people pursue sensuality and impurity without any care or concern for the consequences. The Ephesians must put aside this mimetic way of life, their old selves, which was corrupted by the deceitfulness of mimetic desire and allowed their minds to be transformed by the Spirit. Again, we see this idea that the Holy Spirit transforms people's minds, inspiring a change in behavior as they lay aside their mimetic desire and rivalry to pursue a new life characterized by righteousness and holiness. The author then gives practical guidance on what this righteousness and holiness looks like. The Ephesians must be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as they imitate the example of Christ who has forgiven them, that they might not upset the Holy Spirit. Here again we see mimetic kindness personified as a passable, spiritual being, which may become distressed in response to unfaithfulness. As we noted in an earlier episode, in the church all things are forgiven immediately, because the accuser has been cast out. For this reason, the fruit of mimetic desire, bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, and malice, are also absent. There is no theft because mimetic desire no longer inspires people to covet the possessions of their neighbor. Instead, the Holy Spirit of mimetic kindness inspires people to work and labor to satisfy the needs of others rather than their own mimetic desire. Words also matter in this new brave world. Faithful, appropriate and edifying speech replaces the falsehood and corrupting talk which characterizes the world outside the church. By these means, mimetic kindness will unify and grow the community. 
Verses 26 and 27 may require a little more unpacking. The command, be angry, in Greek, orgesesso, is a passive imperative which conveys the idea of one's anger becoming aroused by someone or something, rather than simply deciding to adopt an angry disposition. For this reason, I have chosen to translate verses 26 and 27 something like this. When you are angered, do not sin, do not let the sun set on your anger. In other words, the Ephesians must seek reconciliation as quickly as possible whenever they experience anger towards their neighbour. Although the author acknowledges anger as a legitimate human emotion, allowing it to grow and fester is sinful because it allows the devil, the personification of mimetic rivalry, to sow division within the church. To maintain unity in the church, the Ephesians must diligently seek to dissolve their anger by reconciling with one another as quickly as possible. Reading on now from chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, communicating with one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The author urges the Ephesians to imitate Christ's loving example who gave himself up as a fragrant offering to God. As the innocent scapegoat, which exposed the scapegoat mechanism, Jesus gave himself as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. In classical Christian theology, Jesus' death eternally satisfies the wrath of God who becomes beneficently predisposed towards his people. From a mimetic perspective, Jesus' death disarms the scapegoat mechanism by exposing the innocence of the victim. 
This revelation of the scapegoat's innocence shines like a light in the darkness, which undermines the scapegoat mechanism's power to unite the community and inspire the persecution of an innocent victim. The resulting impotence of the scapegoat mechanism is interpreted as the pacification of divine wrath through the fragrant aroma of Christ's death. Through this act of self-sacrificial love, the bloodthirst of the Lord of mimetic rivalry and violence was eternally quenched. Thanksgiving for Christ's sacrifice should replace all improper and harmful speech. A focus on gratitude for all God's grace and salvation adds momentum to the positive cycle of mimesis. The author then continues to list other unfruitful works of darkness, including sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Rather than indulging these vices, the Ephesians must expose their futility by shining the light of the gospel revelation upon them. These vices are mimetic idols, which inhibit people from experiencing the kingdom of Christ and God, that is, heaven on earth. Instead of experiencing heaven, those ensnared to their mimetic idols, the sons of disobedience, experience the wrath of God. In other words, when we become enslaved to our mimetic idols, we suffer the violence and conflict as we engage in rivalry with others over commonly desired objects. Suppose that we covet someone else's partner, which produces the mimetic fruit of sexual immorality. When the person finds out that we have acted inappropriately with their partner, they become jealous and engage in rivalry with us over their partner's sexuality. This person imitates our desire for their partner and we imitate their imitation of our desire. The cycle of mimesis inflames both our desires for the common object and generates a bitter rivalry between us as we exchange reciprocal blows. By these means, our mimetic idols generate conflict, violence, and ultimately suffering. The Ephesians must denounce such idols to avoid the divine wrath of mimetic rivalry that they might experience heaven on earth. In light of these truths, the author charges the Ephesians to choose the wise path by rejecting the folly of mimetic idols. By these means, the Ephesians will bring heaven to earth and redeem their present evil age from the mimetic rivalry and violence which continues to plague it. The fool drinks wine to excess and in their drunken state suffers the consequences of their foolish actions, in Greek, asotia, a type of anti-salvation. Although the Ephesians were saved by grace and sealed by the Holy Spirit, if they yield to drunkenness, they will counteract this work of salvation. The image of drunkenness in this text actually describes the intoxication and in folly induced by mimetic idols. To avoid this intoxication and folly, the Ephesians must reject their mimetic idols and instead be filled with the Spirit. This alternative lifestyle is characterized by the anti-mimetic stance of mutual submission to one another, joy, and perpetual kindness. Communal singing also plays a role in this anti-mimetic lifestyle. As everyone joins together and sings the same songs, they are united in one heart and voice. Everyone breathes together and makes a unified sound for the joint purpose of honoring God together. 
Moreover, such songs would be specifically selected or composed to reflect and reinforce the community's core value of realizing heaven on earth and giving thanks to God for the great salvation they have experienced. By these means, communal singing helps the people focus upon their common goal of imitating Christ while rejecting the mimetic idols which threaten to intoxicate and distract them from this vocation. Communal singing also allows the church to model their desire to realize heaven on earth by imitating Christ for all to see and imitate, thereby feeding the cycle of mimetic kindness. At the same time, communal singing combats the spread of mimetic rivalry by fixing the community's mimetic gaze upon Christ and away from one another. In this way, the communal singing of appropriate songs reinforces the anti-mimetic lifestyle of the church and helps guard against the intoxicating effect of mimetic idols. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.